0: they were planning to put alumina into the atmosphere it would be beyond a joke it would be catastrophically stupid
1: hello chris hello chris hi it's patrick thank you so much again for agreeing to chat with me as you know i research geoengineering and uh -hmm. one of the proposals is solar radiation management and Many geoengineers have discussed the possibility of using alumina, and you know aluminum toxicity like no one else. And I'm not going to ask you to say, oh, I believe it's already happening, which, well, I do, but I, I I'm, re- I really want to pick your brains, if you excuse the pun, On your career studying aluminum toxicity specifically the Alzheimer's connection uh, how aluminum can you know cause amyloid clumps and so on also the effect of iron and the debate whether the, the fact that there is still a debate on whether aluminum causes Alzheimer's finally how silica can protect us it has been discussed uh, particularly by uh, David Keith, that we use nanoparticulate aluminum, uh, mm-hmm. amongst other things, barium and so on. And if this was to be implemented, what would be the human health impact of such a program? Sure. So,
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, the, that, that's a that's a slightly different approach to, to one that I regularly have to deal with, which is that... Uh, Will tell me that it's actually happening now and that and you know I often say that, that there is no one on this earth who is more concerned about human exposure to aluminium than I am but my position is always comes from one where we we need evidence and we don't just need evidence that someone collected in their back garden, we need we need as strong and rigorous and potentially peer-reviewed scientific evidence as possible of anything where we're trying to implicate aluminium in in human disease. It's difficult enough uh, to do that with the very best science. And so this is where, to a certain extent, a lot of the um, the use of of alumina in geoengineering arguments completely fall apart. It's because there is nothing there... To support them, we even did a small study here at Kiel um about eighteen months or so ago where we measured aluminium in rainfall. We have a little weather center here at Kiel, so we were able to collect rainfall over a period of it's a student study so it was just over twelve weeks measured the aluminium content of rainfall just out of interest really and we but we found nothing unusual. let's put it that way during that period of time, so it's uh it's one, for, it's one for me that if, and, and uh, I know that the, uh, I mean even the uh, research councils here in the UK, one of them, EPSRC, actually had a program several years ago on geoengineering, which they've since, we are told, you know, uh, stopped. It doesn't exist anymore. Where they were in the first instance, the plan was to just look at water aerosols just as a proof of concept, before they thought about using any other type of aerosol uh, in a climate, uh, you know, engineering you know, manner. And if they were planning to put alumina into the atmosphere, it would be beyond beyond a joke. I mean, it would be it would be catastrophically stupid. Um, and then, you know. People like myself would be extremely vocal about
1: it. Well, um, for the sake of this conversation, let's just talk about it as a proposal. Mm. Aluminum, or, i oh, sorry, <laughs> aluminium. I call it aluminium. I've been here so long. Um, was, is everywhere. Either is fine. Yeah, the, the, this, like this phone I'm using is largely made of aluminium. Uh, it's, it's, it surrounds us. It's in... All kinds of things. And I, obviously I'm aware that, you know, the smaller the particle, the more bioavailable it is. You know, Whether it's inhaled or ingested orally, there are different particle sizes. There are a lot of factors. I remember, I think it was in the 80s, the Camelford disaster. That was the first time I realized mm-hmm. that... Um, yeah,
0: 1988.
1: Yeah. Was that the event that got you interested in studying this?
0: No, no, I started quite a lot before then. I started when I was a student at Stirling University working on aluminium toxicity in fish. So that was 1984 when I started my work.
1: So that's 30 years more.
0: You've been yeah, studying this. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, it's it, it been my whole academic life. What
1: does aluminum do when it... Gets inside your body, and also there's aluminium and alumina. Alumina being Al two O three. The um, basically sapphire is, is is alumina.
0: Yeah, there are many many minerals that are made of aluminium. Absolutely right. And you know what it's what what people what you have to understand about um, aluminium. First of all, and to be honest with you, you can get all of this through my blog and my website and my papers. So I'm going to give you a very brief summary of it. It First of all, it has absolutely no biological function in any living organism. So the only thing that we know aluminium to do is to be toxic. And we know it's toxic because it kills fish in acid lakes, it kills trees. We know that on those rare occasions... Uh, where aluminium has got into human tissues, it has caused toxicity, an example of this being something called dialysis, dialysis encephalopathy, where people on renal dialysis machines received large amounts of aluminium, which went to their brains and was neurotoxic and and produced sort of immediate madness, followed by death. So the neurotoxicity of aluminum, the toxicity of aluminum, all of these things are absolutely in stone. They are not controversial in any way whatsoever. The controversy really is, is everyday exposure to aluminum. Does our everyday exposure to aluminum, for example, contribute to chronic human diseases such as Alzheimer's disease? And again, this is, you know, that's a subject area that I've been working on for more or less 30 years, even in Alzheimer's disease. And uh, it's only recently, in fact, last year, I published a paper where I put my head on the block to say that I now believe that the evidence is so strong that when aluminium reaches a certain concentration in brain tissue, it will be a major contributor to Alzheimer's. In fact, I went as far as saying that it's highly likely that if if there was no aluminium in brain tissue, there would not be Alzheimer's in the normal lifetime of individuals. So... The other, alu- it, initially you're talking about many, many different ways in which we are exposed, including some of the ones you talked about, and one, in, one that would be relevant in the geoengineering uh, um, scheme would be potentially t- its uptake through your nose and your lung. And again, you might be talking about uh, the type of aluminium being an aluminium oxide, as you mentioned, alumina. Aluminium oxides can be quite inert. In other words, if you take a, a grain or take a little piece of alumina and drop it into a glass of pure water, it doesn't instantly dissolve to give you free aluminium, which is the form of aluminium, which is toxic. But it does dissolve over time. And in a biological environment, it is a source of biologically available aluminium, so there are no, almost no inert forms. Even your phone, if you dropped it into some water over time, there would be, <laughs> slowly but surely, the release of some free, free metal from its surface. But those, those types of aluminium which are potentially more toxic are those that deliver the free form of the aluminium, the aluminium that can bind to all the biological molecules, most quickly. And so, yes, you get different types of reactions and different types of responses to different forms of aluminium arriving by different routes. But, you know, one of the, I think, one of the more worrying aspects of an aerosol of aluminium is that the route, for example, via the nose, which takes you via something called the, the um, olfactory system, it is actually a very, very efficient way of getting something into the brain where it doesn't have to go across the blood-brain barrier. There is a route directly from the nose, from the olfactory system, into a part of the brain called the hippocampus. And we know this, of course, because it's no coincidence that uh, people take drugs by this route because it gets to the brain rapidly. Now, aluminum particles could very quickly get to our brains because of their inhalation from from the atmosphere. These aluminum particles in the first instance would not be immediately toxic. Well, unless they're in very, very large amounts, but that's unlikely. But they would would go into the brain and they would probably stay there and they would be slowly processed and they would be slowly dissolved over time. And they would add to all the other ways in which we are all exposed to aluminum in our everyday life. And so they will contribute substantially to the aluminum burden in brain tissue. And that that would be a significant worry. I mean, at the moment, we are also exposed to aluminum in, you've probably heard of these things, PM10s, PM5s, PM2.5s, PMs as the particulate material. Many of the particulate materials that are naturally present, naturally inverted commas, as lateral is the wrong word, but which are present in the air that we breathe, also include some aluminium with them, so they are also contributing to aluminium. So it would be one additional factor, and uh, it, an additional factor that person, I think, it, you know, is it would be one one too far in terms of adding to the p- possible um, toxicity of aluminium in humans. What
1: actually is Alzheimer's, and uh, what happens to the brains of sufferers? you know, as the disease progresses, and what part do you see aluminum playing in that pathology?
0: Yeah, well, I mean, Alzheimer's is a continuum of many ways. The The first thing that happens in Alzheimer's disease is probably that neurons, which are responsible for certain activities, start to work less well. We call it become dysfunctional. So it doesn't mean that they've died, it means that they're no longer functioning as well as they should do. And these neurons then become under increasing pressure, increasing stress over years and indeed decades, and until a point comes when the neuron is no longer a viable operating system, an operating cell, and we have a system in our bodies for getting rid of cells that are no longer working properly. It's called apoptosis. It's called programmed cell death. And probably what happens is either uh, a neuron dies because of programmed cell death or indeed it could die from a more, uh, we call it a necrotic insult, a more uh, acute type insult. And once you start to then lose neurons, you're not only losing You're not only then impairing function, you're uh, you're impairing function more rapidly, but you have no sort of regeneration, you have no ability to be able to respond to that, The, the robustness within the system goes. So quite quickly, once you start to get a rapid loss of neurons, you then get all of the obvious and clear symptoms of Alzheimer's that people know about. And so the disease itself may well be inherent within somebody for say 10 years before clear and obvious symptoms are, are occur. And the way that we think that aluminium contributes to this is simply or well, more or less a threshold effect because we accumulate aluminium in our neurons, in our brain tissue with age. And depending on our environment and what we do, what we where we are, what we're exposed to, how we live our everyday lives, we all have different amounts of aluminium in our brain tissue. And so some of us accumulate more than others. Some of us have a more robust response to it, so it So the same amount of aluminium has less effect. You know, There are many ways in which you can automatically protect yourself against things like, well, uh, against Alzheimer's disease. One is physical exercises, one. And we think that the reason behind that, of course, is because it, or, or one possible reason behind that is because that one of the main ways that the body excretes aluminium is through sweating. So you, by physical exercise, you keep as much aluminium out of the body as possible. So there are ways and means that different people under different circumstances respond differently to an increasing body burden of aluminium or brain burden of aluminium. But at some point... The aluminium in a neuron, the nerve cells of the body, get so high that it either kills the neuron outright or the neuron decides to kill itself. And then you start to manifest some of the really disruptive effects that you see in Alzheimer's and the later stages of Alzheimer's.
1: One other question. Alzheimer's is a form of dementia, and dementia has been around a long time. Dickens was talking about aged parent you know, with dementia. But Alzheimer's itself is a relatively new disease. My research has shown that at least the CDC has, uh, in 1979, they reported 800, 847, I think, deaths. Now it's over one hundred and sixteen thousand per year. These are U.S. deaths from from Alzheimer's. It has increased a lot. Is there, if you uh, if you took a you know a section of a brain from an old-fashioned commoner garden dementia patient, victim, you know, because this would be postmortem, versus a brain from the body of an Alzheimer's sufferer? Can you see are there visual differences with Alzheimer's and?
0: The first thing you've got to appreciate is that the main risk factor for Alzheimer's disease is aging.
1: Yeah.
0: So aging is the main risk factor. So you get that you've got more chance of getting Alzheimer's the older you are. So longevity, uh, the fact is that obviously we now live much longer, means that we will have a higher instance of Alzheimer's disease. And so, you know, the, the difference in longevity of, a, of men and women has gone up from, well, I don't know, the turn of the last century, probably around 50 to 60 years of age, all the way through now to 80 years of age. So there's already a huge additional window in which to develop the disease. Now, in terms of what, what, what is dementia, anything anything which can cause uh, a disruption in neuronal functioning, brain functioning, could be described in some ways as a dementia. So for example, people who have a stroke often suffer a form of dementia, although that dementia can often be reversible. It can often, after a while, um, uh, some of the cognitive effects can, can be recovered because of the ability to uh, regenerate the tissue in those areas or regenerate some of the Connections that were lost in those areas, but to me Alzheimer's disease is a is a pretty broad church, a pretty broad umbrella which encompasses encompasses the majority of what we understand as dementia today. Other forms of dementia, which are not of the Alzheimer's type, are relatively rare by comparison. So Alzheimer's disease is what we all, we today understand primarily as uh, dementia, but anything, anything. So, for example, you can have an alcohol, alcoholic uh, dementia. You can get alcohol. There are many, many potential toxins which, upon entering the brain, can could cause a form of dementia because dementia, in that instance, is simply the, the death of the neurons in a particular area of the brain. But, the form of, but Alzheimer's disease, which is, as I said, the most common form of, or at least what we understand as dementia, is something which is more progressive. It happens over a lifetime, and it is, as I said, the major risk factor for it is aging. And since we know that's one of the things that links it with aluminum, because we also know that we accumulate aluminum in our brain with age as well.
1: Yeah. Does uh- that help? Absolutely. Absolutely. You wrote a paper in, what year is this? 2006. Aluminum and iron, but neither copper nor zinc are key in the precipitation of beta sheets of A, beta 42 and senile plaque cores in Alzheimer's disease. This is in the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease. Um, Yeah. So when you have iron present as well, does this accelerate the, uh, the progress of the disease? Well, what happens? One of, the th- yeah, one
0: of the things you're always looking for is, okay, so aluminium is, is neurotoxic, aluminium is present in brain tissue, but what's the mechanism of neurotoxicity? And one of the possible mechanisms, and pro- quite possibly the most important toxic mechanism, is that aluminium is able to act as something called a pro-oxidant. And what that means is that where there is oxidative damage, let's say in brain tissue, and iron compounds are able to produce oxidative damage if you have aluminium present as well the aluminium it produces a like a tenfold increase in that oxidative damage it's a pro-oxidant it really accelerates the damage that might have been due to an iron compound alone so you know the, the relationship between iron and aluminium is probably quite a strong one with respect to the mechanism of aluminium toxicity and neurotoxicity in particular.
1: Oh, that's good to know. As an aside, I do rainwater analysis. I I, I live in San Francisco, so we have relatively clean air. So we just, it's, you know, I'm, I'm near the, you know, a few miles from the ocean. And, mm-hmm. um,. Since David Keith's paper, he wrote a paper um, suggesting we use these little photophoretic, uh, whatever, you know, he, he, he suggested using uh, particles which included aluminum, barium, titanium, and iron. So I, mm-hmm. I, I've been tested, so when I do my rainwater analysis, I test for aluminum, barium, iron, and titanium. And my most recent one I did from last week you know, I had, of course, aluminum was 220 micrograms per liter. Barium and titanium were present as well, but I had iron at 300 micrograms per liter. So there is also iron in, coming down in the rain. I, I'm not saying, oh, it's absolutely from the planes, but it's it's present in the air at least. And uh, the two of those things together are, are not are not good. I believe you. You were doing in a- terms of. In
0: terms of synergisms or in terms of things where one can make things worse than the other, uh, then, yes, aluminium and iron work, work well together in that respect. I mean, obviously, iron is something the body is used to handling, used to dealing with. And so we have, you know, many, many hundreds of thousands of years of human evolution where iron has been involved in that process. So the body is well prepared for it. It's well prepared for the oxidative damage that iron could cause. We have have lots of antioxidants. What it's not prepared for is an addition to that, which is the aluminium. So that's, you know, aluminium is like, I always call it, a silent visitor to the body. It's a Trojan horse type effect. The body is just ill prepared for the presence of aluminium, whereas it is very well prepared for something like for something like iron, so it's their combination, yes, which could be much much worse than it, in fact than either of them alone.
1: I've also read that um, aluminium and fluoride together can be quite, quite quite. I mean, this talk about you know the, the pineal gland can be adversely affected by you know the two yeah, the it, two things it, together.
0: Yeah, that's. I mean, one thing for sure is that obviously fluoride is not good, It's not. A, it's not good. Mm. And if there was the possibility of uh, aluminum fluorides forming in vivo, that would not be good either because they'd be able to displace things like phosphate and other uh, other essential molecules from certain different biochemical processes. You know, the evidence, actual real scientific evidence that aluminum fluorides, fluoroaluminates form in vivo in the body is extremely weak. There's lots of evidence where you can use fluoroaluminates in cell culture systems to produce biological effects. But those conditions that are required are so much more different than, than any that could really realistically occur in the body. Now, one of my worries about fluoride is more to do with, so for example, if you live in an area where your water is fluoridated, the likelihood is that the fluoride in your water can help aluminium in your gut get across in, into the into the bloodstream. So fluoride increases the biological availability of aluminium. Not mm. oh, good.
1: And also, it goes without saying, to all of these materials, particle size matters, you know, a surface area per unit mass. The smaller the particle, the more bioavailable it
0: is. The more, like if you had... Well, the sm- Well, yeah, in terms of aluminium, the smaller the particle, the more likely it is uh, to dissolve more quickly in a biological medium like a blood or some other biological fluid. It's also got a possibility, depending upon size, size will determine how it might be transported around the body. So really small particles of aluminium particles that might be called nanoparticles less than say 100 nanometers in size some of these particles can access cells almost independently of any other mechanisms whereas larger particles they need to be taken up by specific mechanisms so yes size is important both for accessing different areas of the body and and subcellular areas as well but then also in the rate at which those particles can dissolve to release the biologically reactive form of aluminum which is Al3+.
1: Before I forget, I would like to ask you about your brain study. You got hold of was it 60, 60 brains and you were studying them. Was it what were you studying the aluminum load or were you looking at the gross pathology or well, tell me about that paper. Yeah,
0: what? well th- 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 we did a human brain study which was published in I think 2012 and then another paper from that in 2013, where the first instance we measured the aluminium, iron, and copper in 60 human brains. So this was really, because we had such a fantastic opportunity to do this, it was really about trying to find out, look, how much aluminium is there really in the human brain? And so the first instance was all about really just getting the basic data and we managed to get, in the case of aluminium, you know, more than 700 data points for that. Uh, we did a follow up study where we related the different amounts of metal that we found aluminium, copper, and iron to pathologies uh, related to beta amyloid, which are pathologies which are related to Alzheimer's disease, and we published that also in the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease afterwards. So that was a large reference study almost in many ways and it was a very eye sort of eye-opening study for, for me because it it because we've done it and I, I think i think we've done the very best study on aluminium in human brain tissue that's ever been measured ever been carried out we we were very very careful about the possibility of extraneous contamination or anything of this sort i don't think any other study has been so rigorous and yet we still found, in many cases, significant amounts of aluminium in brain tissue. You know, the reason to do this, even back, uh, just so not that many years ago, is that you will still hear some people say, oh, there's no aluminium in the brain. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's ludicrous to say so, but they do say it. So you needed to produce the very best and strongest and most robust evidence to counter, you know, silly and ludicrous arguments like that.
1: I've got a good one for you, which you can put in for ridiculous arguments. I was speaking to um, someone who... um, His job is to deny, oh, there's nothing wrong, aluminum is fine. And he said that um, what happens with Alzheimer's patients, um, people have... When when you have advanced Alzheimer's, that then makes you more susceptible, more of a sponge to soak up aluminum. It's like, ugh, really, but anyway, yeah,
0: that was uh, that was an
1: aside. Um, well,
0: listen, so- this is the type of thing that you will get all the time. Um, <laughs> the fact that this, the fact that aluminium is a proven neurotoxin in. It, it, in countless animal models, and indeed on those rare occasions where some poor individuals have had lots of aluminium gone into their brain and died a terrible deaths, should be enough for these individuals <laughs> to realise that uh, you know aluminium really is a problem, and we really don't want it in our brains.
1: Mm, absolutely, uh, actually... and it
0: doesn't just accumulate at places, you know, places of pathology. No. That's
1: not the case. The reason we're even speaking is, I saw that wonderful uh, Age of Aluminum documentary. I think that, I think it was the right name of it. And you were you were telling yeah, you, were, yeah. you, you, were, you were telling me that the reason you get more of a concentration in the brain is because uh, there's there isn't the same cell turnover as, say, like your epidermis. Um, Absolutely, yeah.
0: The, the, the neurons last for your lifetime, don't they? So they have an opportunity to accumulate. Your skin cells last a few days
1: yeah and and bones last longer um but yeah. actually going but i want to sort of circle back to the brain study I'm sure in you know in, in London the Science Museum, there must be some brains in jars that could be tested for aluminum, because if you know i I can imagine that people would say, uh, well, yes, uh, there's aluminum in brains now, but there, it's always been mm. the case is is there any has anyone ever tested?
0: For metals, well, but the, pro- the problem go, go is ahead. Yeah. The problem is that we we cannot all all historical brains sitting in jars are in some sort of fixative and that's the reason why they're still there. They've been fixed in time. And we know from actual studies carried out for th- for this particular purpose that these fixatives were always heavily contaminated with aluminium yeah. and still are today actually. So you cannot use you cannot measure aluminium content in anything other than deep frozen tissue, mm. so if we were to find you know somebody deep frozen in a in a glacier somewhere or something of that sort, then maybe we could do that, but no any 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 fixed tissue is of no use to us
1: maybe actually i know it 's a little gruesome obviously all you know anything to do with mortality is gruesome, you know perhaps some of these uh these these climbers on Everest might might be able to help us out on that. Who knows? Yeah. they Who you knows? know. Yeah, I mean, is, well, is, is, they, they, I'm sure they'd be freeze dried by now, but it wouldn't change the you know the the metal content.
0: You know, it, it, you've got to be deep frozen. Right, these things will you know, it, it, your normal freezer is about you know minus sixteen, seventeen, eighteen degrees. Something in there will last for a year before it starts to actually start to break down so you know minus 80 is where you need to keep something if you want it to stay more or less constant over time Mm. so even though you know there may be some instances of individuals frozen (laughs) frozen in ice and something the likelihood is that what you get back will be very difficult to deal with highly likely to be heavily contaminated with any of the environment they're in so Mm. yeah i mean we've thought about this a lot because we're very interested to know when did, you know, I talk about the age of aluminium or the aluminium age, when did it really start and I, I honestly believe that the evidence points to it starting more or less at the same time as we learned how to take aluminium ores and create aluminium metal and therefore aluminium salts and that was at the you know, mid toward mid to the end of the 19th century so aluminium is, an, is aluminium as something which is everywhere is a really new concept yeah. I don't know whether you, you've got you, you've got access to my blog on the Hippopati, Hippocratic Post, haven't you?
1: I actually I haven't actually looked there. I, I just went to your publications to look for, right. but, but, if, I, but, but you, I will. I'll, I'll go on there. there,
0: there's a yeah. On there, there's an essay called the Aluminium Age, which I think is is a really good example of you know what our raison d'être, what we're doing, and why we're doing it. And it's well worth a read just to get an idea of, of of where we are coming from, where our research comes from. Mm-hmm. One other
1: thing I'd like to bring up. I actually ordered some nanoparticulate alumina, a 5 nanometer from uh nanocom and the uh, material safety data sheet says, well basically it says it causes tumors, you know, when when it's in, injected into animals, cancer forms. Uh and I know mm-hmm. I know I know you're you've mostly been studying the alzheimer's side of things but could, could you speak a little to uh neoplasms
0: well the other area i mean the one thing about aluminium is when when, it, when the aluminium age was in its infancy so the early part of the 20th century there were huge numbers of publications about the, the carcinogenic effects of aluminium So it it was actually first recognized more as as, as a carcinogen than anything else. And for some reason or other, that interest of of aluminium as a carcinogen lapsed through the 40s and 50s and 60s. And perhaps is now making a little bit of a comeback because we work on areas such as breast cancer. And the most recent research with breast cancer really does implicate aluminium quite heavily uh, in, in that disease. So, no, I'm not surprised to hear that aluminium can be a carcinogen. And bearing in mind, did you say these were five nanometer particles?
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, it's... these are going
0: to be able to get access, for example, to the, or almost to the nucleus of a cell where aluminium can cause all sorts of all sorts of damage and therefore mutations and therefore potentially being carcinogenic. So that doesn't surprise me. Perhaps it surprises me that it's actually written on the information. But uh,
1: Oh, absolutely. I, I'll send you the data sheet. <laughs> when you order it, there's an extra $40 charge for a hazmat <laughs> handling by FedEx. This is scary stuff. Yeah, Scary stuff. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I, I've got some things like you know the fingerprint dust that the police have used for years is made of a very, very, very fine alumina, mm-hmm. and I've got a little jar of that on my shelf here, but I wouldn't open it. I don't want to breathe no. that stuff in. <laughs> no,
1: thank you. Absolutely it's creepy. It's uh, it's 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 bad. So um, silica because the people who have been following uh, the, the geoengineering thing they uh, people say oh how do we get rid of these metals it was so refreshing when when you mentioned when you uh, like drink fiji water and then you test urine after drinking silica rich water the levels of silica match the levels of aluminum coming out in your urine so it does actually well, yeah. does it dislodge it yeah. what, what how, how yeah, does that not work
0: exactly. What we're saying is, I mean, my first research was on showing that silicon protected against the acute, acute toxicity of aluminium in fish. So we now know, you know that silicon is the natural way in which life is, has been protected against aluminium toxicity since the beginning of life on Earth. So the idea really is to say, well, can we use this concept to protect ourselves against aluminium toxicity? And the simplest way to do that is to drink mineral water, which is rich in silicon. And now, when I say silicon, what I really mean is silicic acid, the soluble form of silicon. What happens is that soluble form of silicon goes immediately, follows water from the gut into the blood, and it's able to form something called a hydroxyluminosilicate, which can then be filtered by the kidney. So it's a way of facilitating the removal of aluminium from the body. And this is an area now that, in terms of clinical trials, we, we ran our first clinical trial on this back in 2006 in Alzheimer's disease. So we've, we've got a lot of research on this. We've just published one on multiple sclerosis. Again, you can access all of this through the, uh, the blog or through my website. So it's all about the, this unique inorganic chemistry that exists between silicon and aluminium because silicon or silicic acid has no other chemistry. Huh. So it won't react with any other metals, it won't react with any organic molecules, it only reacts with itself actually at very high concentrations or with aluminium. And this is a beautiful chemistry which protects life from biologically available aluminium. And we should be using it by drinking silicon rich mineral waters every day to protect ourselves from being in the the aluminium age as I call it.
1: And since we are now in the aluminium age, People will say, "Oh, well, it's 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 the most common element in the crust. It's a you know, it's it's always been around. What's the big deal? Don't be concerned about Al two or three. Uh, what has changed? Is it is it simply refining it br- brings it into the yeah, biosphere?
0: Absolutely, it hasn't always been around. It's always been it's, it, it has actually been excluded from biological systems, and only man's activities." Um, and again, you you know, read about this in the different areas I've told you and I've suggested you have a look at but only man's activities have changed this. And so primarily, the main one was how to take an, an inert aluminum silicate ore from the earth and from it make aluminium metal and from aluminium metal make aluminium salts. And these are all much, much more biologically available than the inert ores from which they came. Well, that's it. That's the aluminium age. It came from man's, you know, revolution in being able to make aluminium metal. And in fact, all of modern modern life today has depended upon that amazing piece of technology.
1: Uh, and It's cheap and plentiful. What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> Unfortunately. Yeah. So, uh, you have found out. Well, I, I, I want to thank you so much for all of your your expertise on this. And I noticed that, uh, I'll, I'll put a link in here so uh, people can support your work because I know didn't you have some funding issues halfway through your uh, your brain study?
0: Oh, listen, we 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 have nothing but funding issues now. We cannot get any funding from any conventional sources. We all of our research is now funded by philanthropy. It is impossible. No one will fund. None of the go- government, research councils, major charities. You know, aluminium is a dirty word. They will not fund it. Yeah. It's, it's changed. It's, it, it's always been difficult, but in the last five years, it's, it's literally impossible. No one gets funding for this type of research. So all of our research is funded through philanthropy.
1: Well, um, I suggest anyone listening to this, uh, if you can afford anything, send it to Chris. He's doing, he's
0: doing, you're doing God's work. (laughs) We'll we'll be very, we'll be very grateful and we will put it to very good use, that's for sure. Wonderful. Yeah, great to talk to you, Patrick. Good luck, good luck with uh, your investigations.
1: Thank you so much. Oh, by the way, before we leave, I am going to send you some information. I came across an article in Science in 2013 clarifying the dominant sources and mechanisms of cirrus cloud formation and they found that the uh, cloud condensation nuclei up in the stratosphere i'll just read the abstract formation of cirrus clouds depends on the availability of ice nuclei to begin condensation of atmospheric water vapor Although it is known that only a small fraction of atmospheric aerosols are efficient in ice nuclei, the critical ingredients that make those aerosols so effective has not been established. We have determined in situ the composition of the residual particles within cirrus crystals after the ice was sublimated. Our results demonstrate that mineral dust and metallic particles are the dominant source of residual particles, whereas sulfate mm. and organic particles are underrepresented, upper, underrepresented, and elemental carbon and biological materials are essentially absent. And, um, yeah. you know, so somehow, and, and yep. they tested, and they're actually getting aluminum, not even alumina, aluminum being the cloud condensation. You, can, you know, obviously I'm not putting, you know, Making one. No, there well, for this the is other. part of
0: the basis. I mean, this is why weather control. They do use salts and stuff, don't they, to make things rain and stuff when they're needed, or to stop things from raining, depending on what they want to do. So, yeah, the, to provide nuclei around which you can form ice crystals, and then you can initiate a certain cloud formation or something. So, is pretty well known.
1: Yeah. And the fact that these metals—I mean, I mean—these are, you know, they're heavier than air, even though they're small. You know, and and the smaller the particle, the more it can blow around and stuff. But you know, they're finding metals, heavy metals up there, where pollen's not even getting up there. So anyway, that's yeah. that, 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 that's that's another thing. I, I will I will I will send you this as well. Um, okay. But yeah, there's a it's an interesting thing, and I'm and I'm and it's good because so a lot of people are just completely unaware that. Because uh, cause we're so familiar with uh, you know aluminum, we you know beer cans and you know mm. it, it's in all kinds of stuff. And then, by the way, also another creepy thing was the um, the uh, this um, U.S. Nano where I bought my five nanometer alumina stuff. Mm. Uses include cosmetics.
0: Yes, of course. Yeah, they're putting. Yeah, they're in it. lots of cosmetics.
1: <sighs> Yikes. Yep, and you know, of course you know but, with the underarm underarm deodorant you know link whatever that would be, that's another thing. But uh, again, I, I, I again thank you so much for your time, and I'll yep, uh, send pleasure. you a link and uh, keep up the good work. Yep, and we'll keep in touch. All right, thank you so much. All okay,
0: right, all right, thanks, Patrick.
1: Take it. Bye-bye. Bye. bye, bye.